I love a good mystery, and so does everyone else. In fact, everyone loves a good family mystery, especially one with as many twists and turns as June's Journey. I know that our listeners will absolutely love this game because you are uncovering the mystery of June's sister's murder, and you're becoming a detective. You're looking for clues, and each scene will lead you to a new thrilling storyline. This is a great way to engage your observation skills to uncover key pieces of information that lead you on to many chapters of mystery, danger, and romance. Right now, I'm in the process of interviewing family members, and this is bringing me back, just so you know, to my days in law enforcement, and I'm having such a blast with it because it is so much more lighthearted, but it also has the mystery of where will this take me? You can even chat and play with or against other players by joining a detective club. You'll even get the chance to play in a detective league to put your skills to the test. Megan, I think we should join a detective club together. We've got this. (laughs) Can you crack the case? Download June's Journey for free today on iOS and Android. June needs your help, detective. Download June's Journey for free today on iOS and Android. The Hargan women seemed to have it all. We were blessed. My mom was amazing. But detectives would soon discover... Inside the house, there were the bodies of two women. A story of betrayal you would struggle to believe if it wasn't true. I am just praying to God this is a sick joke. From 48 Hours, this is Blood is Thicker, the Hargan family killings. Listen to Blood is Thicker, the Hargan family killings, wherever you get your podcasts. This podcast may contain content that is graphic and disturbing in nature. Listener discretion is advised. A battered woman watches a murder in helpless horror. But what would happen when her abuser cites her as an accomplice to save his own skin? This is the Kelly Harnett story. Megan, I've told you a little bit about today's case because, you know, I was so excited about it. Remember, this was one of the recommendations from Jamie Weiner, one of our patrons who always gives us the best recommendations. She does. And it's interesting because I saw the email come in. You know, I handle most of the emails uh-huh. and um, I responded right away. But you were on the phone with me right away. Like, if you're not taking this case, it's mine. So I yep. knew that you were serious about it. And we always thank her for the suggestions. Yeah, thank you so much. Keep those coming. They're always excellent cases. Now, today's case, Megan, is very similar to another case that we feel very strongly about, the Nikki Adamondo case. Oh. Yeah, so both of these women are from New York. And as you'll see, their cases follow a similar trajectory in some sense. And you'll see why. Okay. There was a really amazing article that was in the New York Magazine's Intelligencer on January 4th, 2003. In this article, journalist Justine Vanderloon profiled Kelly Harnett's journey. It's both beautifully reported and written and so informative. So I urge you all to check out that article. And we'll have links to it in our show notes. Now, Megan, let's meet Kelly. Kelly Harnett was born in 1982 in Astoria, Queens, New York, and she lived with her parents and her brother. Now, she was raised in a devoutly Catholic home. However, as is true in many cases, religion did not mean that her life was perfect. It was actually far from it. 
Now, Kelly's father struggled with alcoholism, and he was also very abusive to Kelly's mother, Kathleen. He would consistently beat Kathleen, and at one point he even strangled her, and eventually he would leave the family. Now, it's unknown if he was kicked out or left on his own accord, and it's also not known if he was also abusive to Kelly and her brother. Mm -hmm. Obviously, that's very damaging to children to witness. Of course. In addition to the abuse that she suffered at the hands of her husband, or maybe because of it, Kathleen battled debilitating depression, and she also had a serious medical issue that left her reliant on pain medications. So what was the issue? Something with her back, Megan. I know that she had numerous spinal surgeries, So she was always in a lot of pain and quite reliant on these medications. And unfortunately, by the time Kelly was just 12, she was also taking opiates. And by 17, she was consuming a mix of drugs such as Vicodin, Demerol, Percocet, Oxycontin, and fentanyl regularly. I don't know, Megan. I know the look on your face. You're going to ask me this. Was she stealing her mom's pills, right? Is that what you're going to say? Yes. Yep. So has she been stealing her mother's pills or was she prescribed them for something? My suspicion would be that she started by stealing her mother's pills. And then, of course, as they're highly addictive, she found alternate ways to get them, whether it be legal or illegal. Yeah. And I don't know that information for sure, but I think that's a valid hypothesis, especially at the age of 12. That's pretty young that even if she had some sort of pain disorder, I don't imagine a medical professional would have prescribed her opioids. Now, when Kelly was in her late teens, her father did return to the family home. And I don't know if he got clean and then he was welcomed back in or, you know, how it all transpired. But he did come back, which was beneficial for the family in some ways. But unfortunately, he was only around for a few years because he would die of an overdose at the young age of 51. Oh, so this is a lot of trauma for a young girl. By the time she was in her 20s, Kelly was living in Astoria with both her mother and brother, and she was struggling heavily with her drug addictions. She did go to college for a short time, but then she dropped out, and she also had trouble holding down a job. Now, I think it's pretty amazing that she even went to college at all, given all that she was battling. But clearly, it was not sustainable for her, and she reports that she even thought daily about harming herself. Now, I wish I had more information on Kelly. Such as, you know, what she was like, what she was into, but Mm -hmm. there's not that much information on her story. And I did reach out to Kelly. I had not heard back at the time of this recording, so perhaps we will get a chance to talk to her at some point in the future. But, you know, all we know about her right now is that she's, you know, she struggled. She was struggling with drugs and, you know, trying to it sounds like she was trying to do right, but maybe her addiction was taking over. I didn't know that you reached out to her. That's nice to hear. I hope we do hear back from her. Yeah, I realized as I was writing about who she is or who she was younger, I realized there just wasn't a complete picture of her. And it just felt like mm-hmm. I kind of wanted to know who she was a little more. So okay. again, hopefully we'll get that opportunity. So Megan, not surprisingly, we've seen in many cases when someone has such a tough upbringing, sometimes they find themselves in physically abusive relationships as well. Now, this was particularly true when Kelly began dating a man she met at a methadone clinic. This man was Thomas Donovan. Thomas was a former UFC fighter. So as you would expect, he was incredibly strong and very tough, but he was also known to be violent. He would often rob other drug users of their supplies through assault and intimidation. Mm. Thomas was also a steroid user, and we know that that can lead to aggressive behavior as well. And unfortunately, he consistently took out his aggression on his partner, Kelly. There are reports of Thomas throwing Kelly into trees, slapping her, punching her in the stomach and the back of the head. 
and he also regularly would choke her. In one instance, Megan, he hit her so hard that a blood vessel in her eye had burst and her eyeball stayed red for a whole month. And it, well, this wasn't just Kelly's report. At one point, a neighbor witnessed this abuse and the neighbor saw Thomas grab Kelly by the hair and throw her to the ground violently. I'm assuming she maybe had to go to a doctor or hospital too for some of these incidents. I mean, a bursted blood vessel might, she might've gone for that. So maybe we're looking at some medical documentation too. Well, as we see with other abuse victims, uh, sometimes they try to cover up for their partner's abuse and maybe she said it was an injury from some other source. Oh, too bad I was trying to be optimistic that there would be more yeah. records. But there's eyewitnesses, you said. Yep, yeah, and there also might be record that I'm just not aware of. Unfortunately, Kelly stayed with him. You know, she watched her father do many similar things to her mother growing up. So for Kelly, it's possible that she thought this was normal behavior, sure. right? Social learning theory. Yep. You know, people who see abuse, and if that abuse goes unpunished, then they're more likely to then themselves either be the victim of abuse or become an abuser. The couple would spend a lot of their time at a local park, and this would be a place where they hung out, used drugs, they drank alcohol. They would often sleep there for days at a time. So there were other users that they hung around with. Kelly and Thomas were not homeless. They chose to hang out in the park. They would kind of, I guess you could say, go on benders, um, hanging out with other people that were using as well. Mm -hmm. At the time of the events we'll be focusing on, Kelly had been with Thomas for several years and Kelly was becoming more and more fearful of Thomas. But nothing could have prepared her for what would happen on July 6, 2010. Now, on this day, Thomas had spent the afternoon in conversation with a man named Ruben Angel Vargas. He was a 31-year-old local who often did drugs in the park, and he was an acquaintance. He would hang out around them. They would all hang out together using drugs. Thomas hung out with Ruben for a while, and Kelly had joined the three at some point, and they drank together and used drugs together for several hours. Now, according to Kelly, at around 2 a.m., Thomas had borrowed Ruben's bike to go get some more booze at a local store. While he was gone, Kelly says that Ruben hit on her and it made her uncomfortable. So when Thomas returned, Kelly told him that she wanted to leave. And she says that Thomas ignored her. She kept pushing, telling Thomas that she was uncomfortable and she wanted to leave. At one point, she decided she needed to tell him why. So she explained that Ruben had hit on her. And as you could suspect from somebody who's using and someone who has this type of history, he became enraged. And he said that he was going to kill Ruben, simply. Mm-hmm. Without warning, almost immediately, Thomas threw Ruben to his knees and held him in a chokehold. Kelly says that she begged Thomas not to kill the man and that she repeatedly tried to pull him off of Ruben, but that he told her to shut up or he would kill her next. As Thomas beat Ruben, he would repeatedly check his pulse. He would continue to choke him, check his pulse, and then it became clear to him that the man was not dying. So Thomas demanded that Kelly give him one of her shoelaces. Kelly described Thomas in this moment as, quote, pure evil, like I was looking into the eyes of a person who was not even there anymore. She says she was confident that if she did not comply, that she would be next. Sounds terrifying. So Kelly says she gave Thomas the shoelace from her sneaker. Thomas pulled it tightly around Ruben's neck, actually making so tight that the shoelace broke and Ruben was still alive at this point. So Thomas then removed his belt and strangled Ruben with his belt until... Ruben slumped to the ground. Now, Kelly has literally just watched her boyfriend kill someone. And would she be next? She was in shock and she was terrified as Thomas demanded that she pick up some of Ruben's scattered items, including his wallet, on their way out of the park. 
Were there any eyewitnesses to this, Amy? Well, yes, Aunt Megan, unbeknownst to the couple, there was a bystander who had seen the whole thing and immediately called for help. But unfortunately, it was too late for Ruben Angel Vargas, who was pronounced dead at the scene. And it did not take the police very long to apprehend Thomas Donovan and Kelly Harnett, who had not made it very far because, again, this bystander eyewitness had called fairly quickly after the two left the park. Megan, what do you think happens once these two are in custody? Oh, they start turning on each other. Exactly. Immediately, they both start implicating the other. Thomas said he started fighting with the man in self-defense and that Kelly strangled him. Mm -hmm. Then Kelly says that she was scared for her life and begged Thomas to stop, claiming that she had absolutely no hand in the murder whatsoever. The couple were arraigned. And again, for some of our listeners that may not know, that just simply means that the charges were formally read against them. That's the first time that the accused is brought before a judge. The couple were arraigned together and sent to jail to await trial, essentially, or to, you know, work out a plea. Right. Now, at this point, Kelly was 28 years old. This is going to infuriate you, Megan. It did not take long for Thomas to negotiate a guilty plea for manslaughter in exchange for 15 years. Now, he was sent to a max security prison in upstate New York. However, at his hearing on August 2nd, 2010, Thomas claimed that Kelly was responsible for the fatal choking and that she had, in fact, helped him. Are you going to explain why they took his work, why they decided to cooperate with him? Because it seems more likely with a choking scenario to me that it would be a, a male who would commit that act. And for the various reasons we've discussed on this podcast before. We are going to dive into exactly that during the discussion. So I think that's a very important point. Okay. So <laughs> Kelly was now on trial for murder and she refused to plead guilty, as many people do when they say that they, in fact, are innocent. Yeah. It would take almost three years for her case to be heard. Unfortunately, Megan, during this time, she was waiting at Rikers Island. Oh, one yeah. of the, just like the worst jails. I mean, really. So for our listeners who are not aware, people that are, in the criminal justice area or people who live in the tri-state area by New York City probably are aware that Rikers Island has does not have the best track record. Now, Rikers is one of the largest correctional facilities in the whole world, which I did not know until I started researching this case. I knew it was huge, but right. in the whole world, that's much larger than I thought. On any given day, they have about 10,000 inmates. Mm -hmm. And we're talking males, females, and juveniles. Megan, did you know I worked there at some point? No. I know. I realized, that, I realized we never talked about this. You think you know a girl, huh? And my father's father was a correctional officer at Rikers. Wow. Yeah. Totally didn't know that. That was, I found that out kind of recently too. I thought that was interesting. Um, what did yeah. you do? Like an intake coordinator? So I was part of a research project where we would be conducting interviews with juveniles who were involved in some treatment program at Rikers. So I used to take the the bus from the Upper East Side to Rikers Island. Wow. And I don't know if I could even explain just that feeling of walking into a place like Rikers. This jail has had a poor reputation for a while. Oh, yeah. But as of late, it has really fallen into a state of danger and despair especially for women. I mean, there's a pervasive culture of sexual abuse, mostly correctional officers abusing female inmates. Of course, there's also inmate-on-inmate -inmate abuse. 
I also learned, Megan, that over three-fourths of the women who are at Rikers Island are domestic violence survivors. That does not surprise me. No. And as we know, that's probably an underestimation also. You know, it's probably higher than it's actually reported. I could swear that they're tearing Rikers down at some point and reallocating everyone. You're absolutely right, Megan. In 2027, Rikers will officially be closed. And what they plan on doing is having four borough-based jails, Mm -hmm. you know, meaning Bronx, Brooklyn, Queens, Staten Island. And there is a lot. It is interesting, Megan. I started going down the rabbit hole of all of this talk. I don't live in Manhattan anymore. When I did, I was, you know, I would follow these news stories a lot closer. Right. But I didn't realize what a big undertaking and how that's why they've been talking about this for like a decade. And it's still not going to happen for several years because, again, 10,000 people on any given day. I am so glad to hear that they're going to reallocate because it is just too many people. And that's why there are too many problems. So I'm glad to hear that it's at least a plan. Yes, it has to happen eventually. But I also think it's important to point out that it's not necessarily the place, it's the people. So if they're going to be opening up these new facilities. I hope they Mm. also hire new officers who are trained in maybe more effective ways to deal with people who are incarcerated. Agreed. And just to put this in perspective, for those of you who might be familiar with the very famous prison Alcatraz in it's off what San Francisco Bay, right? Megan Rikers Island is 20 times larger than Alcatraz. It's unbelievable what an establishment it is, how huge it is. Yep. Okay, so Kelly was kept at Rikers until her trial in 2015. Kelly chose not to testify on her behalf. What do you think about this? Good idea? Bad idea? I think it is normally a good idea for people not to testify. Your credibility can be impeached. However, in a case like this where she's saying that he did it and he's he's going to presumably testify against her, it almost becomes necessary. I already can see the crux of the defense will be battered woman syndrome, or at least I would think that's where we're going. And this is why she did this. But this is one of those cases where it's going to be hard without her explaining the situation, you know, to really understand what happened. I think that's a great point. And I'm just going to play devil's advocate. I think she was probably worried about contradicting her statements from the initial interview. Now, remember, she was using substances Mm -hmm. and she was also very distraught. Yep. And the fact that she was a substance user, you know that They shouldn't, but they do on cross-examination. They would have probably destroyed her. And I think this is one of those situations where she damned if you do, damned if you don't. I think so, too. The prosecution, they had a pretty weak case. In fact, from what I learned about this case, their star witness was that eyewitness. But in the courtroom, he wasn't even able to identify Kelly. Wow. So it's very interesting. But regardless, Kelly was found guilty of murder in the second degree. She was sentenced to 17 years to life. Wow. And she was transferred to Bedford Hills Correctional Facility in Westchester, New York. Oh, Bedford Hills is home to some many famous inmates as well. I covered that in one of my classes, and I'm sure we've talked about it here before, but I think it's Pamela Smart, Carolyn Wormis. I think at one point it might have even been Amy Fisher. And and there's definitely been some other high-profile inmates in Bedford. Is it the only... Max Women's Facility in New York? Yeah, I'm not positive, but I think okay. it, I think that's exactly why. I think it's because, remember, most states only have one or two female facilities. So I think it is the primary facility for women in New York. Yeah, okay. At Kelly's sentencing hearing, she apologized to the Vargas family, but she still maintained that she had not assaulted Vargas. She says, quote, I was deathly afraid of my co-defendant and I was about to become his next victim. I believe he would have killed me too, 
And instead of prosecuting a case with one victim, it would have been two. I am not taking away from the fact that there is a victim here. And I know that a person did die. But unfortunately, the court is now taking my life as well. And I'm going to do everything in my power to see that it does not stay that way. I do not understand, Amy. Why are they, again, it seems so much more likely to me that they would want Kelly to cooperate and testify against the male aggressor here. Please tell me we know why that was not the case. She refused to take a plea, but he was open to taking a plea. Oh, isn't that awful? Okay. All right. You said they were both cooperating or talking. So I see. I I misinterpreted that. Okay. That makes that makes sense. Okay. But I think, listen, you know, I think the prosecution was trying to say, yes, we know he did it, but she helped. So I don't think they're saying Kelly did it by herself right. because he still got okay. 15, which is nothing compared to what they gave her. Right. But it's not that they think that he didn't do it. So I think the narrative is that she helped because that's what he said. Yep. OK. Understood. Not understood, but understood. So while Kelly, yeah, I understand. Yeah. <laughs> while Kelly was in prison, she spent her time helping others with their cases. She was what is known as a jailhouse lawyer. Now, this is typically an incarcerated person who usually they're self-taught, I'd say almost always self-taught, and they do legal work, they give legal advice, and they advocate for each other, sometimes themselves as well, but their job is to advocate for other people and help other inmates with their cases. Um, Both of us know many individuals at different correctional facilities that do this type of work. I think they usually start as, yeah, it usually starts that they're working on their case, but they become so familiar with it and so great at the legalese that they start to apply that to other cases. I also see a lot of times when someone who spends a lot of time on their own case, once they exhaust all their appeals, then they want to help someone else because they now have this expertise that they want to use. Right. By Kelly's count, four women were released because of her legal work. And she also says many others were able to move their cases forward. Now, all of the inmates at the time knew that Kelly Harnett was the go-to person for all things legal. You know, she loved what she did and everyone really loved her. Kelly says, though, as she worked with these women, that she discovered that almost all of her friends inside had been abused before they came to prison. And for most, the abuse was in some way directly connected to their incarceration. No surprise. And she says this was kind of a hard reality to see. She says, quote, I looked around and thought if it wasn't for her abuser, she wouldn't be here. So she would constantly look around and realize, wow, if it wasn't for the abuser, this one wouldn't be here. That one wouldn't be here. So Kelly decided to shift her focus to look at the ways in which the criminal legal system targeted women, specifically those who were abuse survivors like themselves. And did you notice I said the criminal legal system and not the criminal justice system? I totally did. Okay. And I figured there's going to be a reason why. There is. I'm going to try to start using that. People talk a lot about language and the way that language has an effect. And I've read that criminal justice system implies that the system is in fact just. So there's a whole movement to call it the criminal legal system now. So we'll do the best we can. But I I like that. Well, hold on. I think criminal legal system implies that the system is also legal. Oh, yes. That's <laughs> and I'm true. not sure that that's always true, but okay, noted. Well, there's also people who say the word criminal isn't great to use either. So I, th- I think we'll, we'll never be able to find a term that makes everyone happy, but we'll keep trying. Yes. So it seemed that Kelly, you know, she was able to help a lot of people, but she wasn't able to help herself for quite some time. However, a break came for her in 2013. Now, while in prison, Thomas Donovan sent at least two letters to Kelly's legal team in which he said he regretted implicating her 
and admitted to physically abusing her. Oh. Both notes contain clear confirmation that he alone killed Ruben Angel Vargas out of anger, and he admitted that he concocted a version of events for authorities. His letters even reported a recollection of the killing that was similar to what Kelly says, that she was crying and pleading with him to stop and that she tried to push him off the victim. So he essentially said, you know, she did not take part in the murder and he wanted to help her defense if he could in any way. Yeah, because this is what happens when you have a long time in prison. Sobriety. I bet he was a sober man then looking back and taking accountability. It's ironic you say that because in 2017, he died of an overdose in prison. Well, that doesn't mean he wasn't sober for some time either. No, you're, abso- have, you you're know, absolutely right. Relapsed. You're absolutely right. Yeah. Unfortunately for Kelly, Thomas's admission was kind of too little too late. It didn't really, it didn't have much effect on anything. But from what I understand, Megan, a statement like this in a situation like this is not grounds for an appeal. No, it's not exactly new evidence. They could say that he changed his story. It's a recant. He's trying to help her. This isn't like new evidence. There's nothing that was wrong at trial. You know, could a prosecutor consider this? Sure. But I think they could say there was any number of reasons why people change statements. And we've seen that happen again and again. Yeah, I think that's a good point. I think in some situations it is possible that a prosecutor would do something with this information, but there's no legal mandate. No, there is. There's no legal mandate that anything be done with this information. Not at all. You know, but regardless, these letters were a new hope for Kelly. Yeah. And she started calling the original prosecutor from her trial, kept pleading her case to him with this new evidence. She allegedly called him over 200 times. Now, you know, this is what I love about the podcast. I keep learning so much. For some reason, I was under the impression that if you're convicted of a crime, it would be like harassment to phone the pros- the original prosecutor in the case. But no, these two spoke many times. I didn't know this was completely allowed or disallowed. So I guess it's ultimately up to the prosecutor to decide whether or not he or she is comfortable taking those calls because it doesn't sound yeah. like it's illegal. Uh, Yeah, I was going to say it's probably discretionary. Kelly was not at all harassing or it wasn't anything threatening in nature. So maybe this prosecutor. But uh, yeah, I would imagine that the ball's in the prosecutor's court. They could shut that down real quick if they were uncomfortable with it. I think so. According to Kelly, on one of these calls, the prosecutor mentioned something that kind of made her ears perk up. Something called the Domestic Violence Survivors Justice Act, DVSD. J-A. Does that sound familiar? Because this is where it ties into Nikki Adamondo, right? Absolutely. So this sounded a little familiar to her because Kelly at some point received a letter from a local organization who had been campaigning for the passage of the new law. Right. Now, this new law would allow judges to sentence domestic violence survivors convicted of crimes as a result of abuse to shorter prison terms. And the bill would also give currently incarcerated survivors the opportunity to apply to the courts to be resentenced. Mm-hmm. Now, this is huge. Yes. And we saw this was very, very central role also in Nikki Adamando's case. But was Nikki successful under that? So it depends how you define success. Right. Her supporters would say no because they were advocating for her to be released because they believe that she was unfairly charged and that she's really wrongfully incarcerated at this point. However, other people would say that it did help her because on July 14th, 2021, her sentence was reduced. Her original sentence was 19 years to life, and it was reduced to 7.5 years. This was the first time that the appellate court applied the DVSJA Mm. and ruled on a, quote, more compassionate sentence. Right. So, yes, it's maybe not full justice for Nikki. 
but I think it does set a very important precedent. It wasn't until 2019, though, that this law was finally signed. Ironically, did you know that this was signed into law by New York's then-governor, Andrew Cuomo? I did. So he had publicized himself as an advocate for survivors of abuse and gender-based violence. A bit ironic because during his tenure, he's he only commuted the sentences of four women who claimed gender violence defense. And more so, two years after signing the law, Cuomo resigned when multiple women accused him of sexual misconduct. I know. But anyway, back to Kelly. Once the DVSJA passed, Kelly studied the new law and she created a template for women at Bedford Hills as almost like a way to assess their own eligibility. She would also write letters on behalf of inmates. On one occasion, she wrote a letter on behalf of her friend. And because of this letter Kelly wrote, this case was taken on pro bono by an appellate lawyer and it won her friend a reduced sentence. Wow, that's great. Yeah, so even though her case is kind of stalling, she's really still helping others. Finally, on January 7th, 2022, after serving almost 12 years, Kelly and a team from the Survivors Justice Project. So the Survivors Justice Project, they fight for de-incarceration, particularly through the Domestic Violence Survivors Justice Act in New York. So they're just like a collective of activists, lawyers, researchers, etc. So Kelly, along with individuals from this organization, finally filed her application And in the application, Kelly recounted her traumatic childhood and her abusive relationship with Thomas. After receiving her application, the judge ordered a court hearing on April 27, 2022, where the judge informed Kelly that, quote, without question, Ms. Harnett, you are an example of someone that never gave up. You demonstrated exceptional personal growth and you provided support to other women during the time you have been incarcerated. The judge also called Kelly a survivor and a changed individual. She further informed Kelly that her lawyer and the Queens District Attorney's Office had come to an agreement that they would forego her application, but her murder conviction would be vacated if she would plead guilty to manslaughter. Oh, okay. That's an interesting turn. The most attractive part was that this would be in exchange for time served. I was just going to ask, I assume that the condition was that she was going to be released. So Kelly, now 40, took the deal. And we will discuss this deal in just a moment. Before that, I just want to talk a little bit about when she was released. So about a week after this ruling, Kelly walked free again after 12 years in prison. One of the very first things she did was go to visit her mother, Kathleen, who was unfortunately hospitalized in critical condition and didn't end up passing away shortly after Kelly's release. Kelly was able to get a temporary job at NYU's jailhouse lawyer initiative where she was able to help others with the same skills that she had acquired while at Bedford Hills. Oh, that's cool. But like most formerly incarcerated people, Kelly struggled a lot. As I mentioned, this was just a temporary job. So when the funding ran out, the job ended. And Kelly struggled to find gainful employment, mostly due to her record and the large gap on her resume. And the felony conviction, the box, check the box. you know. And the box check. Um, Although she did list her primary source of experience as 12 years as a law clerk for the Department of Corrections and Community Supervision. And Megan, when I teach my classes in correctional facilities, I always urge my students, you know, you should put the Department of Corrections as your employer. They do, in fact, pay you to do a job, especially like in Kelly's case. She had 12 years as a law clerk. That's very valuable experience. But even with that experience, it was very difficult for Kelly to get on her feet. 
What remains is the fact that Kelly Harnett spent 12 years in prison as a convicted murderer simply because she was present when her abuser killed someone. And because she maintained her innocence and refused the deal, Kelly ended up with a longer term in prison than the actual murderer. Remember, Thomas was sentenced to 15 years for manslaughter while she got 17 years to life for second-degree murder. It's like the trial penalty. Just the fact that people who exercise their rights to a trial are often punished more harshly. Yep. And the fact that the prosecution made a deal with someone who was clearly, to me, more culpable, which also happens. Doesn't this also bring up accomplice liability for you? Yeah, absolutely. Of course. Felony murder, uh, the things that we've talked about in our other shows where one person is seemingly more culpable than the other, but the accomplice, someone who has not taken a lead role or performed the, the crime for which they're incarcerated, is serving more time than the instigator and the one who committed the serious act. You know, I'm thinking of one man in particular that you have done some work with. Um, I believe he served like a decade longer than the act, the person who actually pulled the trigger in his crime. So you're thinking of Domingo. And yes, he has absolutely served uh, more time and he did not pull the trigger. In fact, I believe he actually waited with the victim, if I'm not mistaken, because of how guilty he felt. And he's been denied parole despite years of great behavior. It's it's really hard to fathom. So, Megan, that brings up many issues for women who are survivors of domestic violence. I mean, do you remember the case of Tondaleo Hall that I covered? Mm -hmm. I mean, in her case, Megan, she was sentenced to 30 years behind bars for failing to protect her two young children from the abusive father who never spent a day in prison. I do recall that one. Horrifying. And they said it was because that she failed to protect them. And she herself was also a victim and a, a survivor of domestic abuse. Right. And of course, Nikki Adamando's case is very relevant here as well. Right. OK, so there's a number of issues here that are worth looking at. First of all, the fact that one person is willing to cooperate doesn't necessarily mean that that should be taken into consideration and used against the other person. It seemed to me, again, I'm just going to state right on the record way more you know, likely that, that she was not a primary aggressor here. And I understand what you're saying is that they were saying Kelly was involved at probably the same level and she wouldn't cooperate. But does that mean she deserves to be punished more harshly? No, because we live in a system where plea bargains rule the day. And that is something that I am firmly opposed to. We've just used plea bargaining too much to coerce people into guilty pleas. And that's really concerning because as you probably stated, or as you did state, he later on turned around and recanted and said that it was not him. And I believe that's probably the truthful version, the one that had years in prison to think about it. But because of the coercive nature of plea bargaining at the time, he felt that this was the plea deal he needed to take. So I'm just going to say that's, yeah, that's a problem in itself. And Kelly had no history of violence where he had a long history of violence as well. Her history was she had some drug offenses. I don't believe she had any history of violence, whereas this right. man was very violent. Yeah, she's got a history of, I bet, petty crimes related to her substance abuse. There's certainly no doubt about that, but he's got more red flags. So this is definitely one of the problems with plea bargaining. Secondly, I'm glad to see movement against, you know, reducing sentences or being more compassionate towards, uh, a, you know, victims of domestic violence. However, it's simply not enough. Yes, a reduced sentence is great. But in this case, she still has a felony. Kelly still has a felony and other women still have to take felonies. They get a reduced sentence, but we're saying we're compassionate. But what about the fact that 
they if it's if there's a clear demonstration of self-defense or of no involvement in a crime, why do they have to serve a felony conv- time for a felony conviction at all? It should be that we move to vacate these sentences and give these uh, victims true justice. Yeah. So while I'm, I'm torn because I think it's a sign of progress, I'm also bothered because it's not going far enough. Yep. I agree. They should be exonerated of all charges. And as you pointed out, their record should be automatically expunged. So this goes to a lot of the differences in policy, you know, policy changes and how we treat domestic, you know, violence and abusers. And we've come so very far since the 70s, but in some ways we're still stuck. Mm -hmm. So I I like to think that this is a sign of progress, but I am still troubled by the fact that, you know, Kelly and and others have to take, you know, felony convictions and suffer then the consequences that stem from that. I agree, but I, I am thankful for organizations that are working to move things in the right direction. They've done a lot of great work in New York and other states are following also. So I think they're setting the tone for how we should be treating domestic violence survivors. Yes, I think that's encouraging. Are there things, Amy, that we can do? Are there takeaways from today's case? Any action items or is there anything that we want to let our listeners uh, know about? Yes, thanks for asking. So there's the Free Them New York campaign. So it's a project of the New York chapter of Survived and Punished, which is a grassroots prison abolitionist organization. Now, they have a campaign that is specifically dedicated to freeing criminalized survivors of gender violence that are held in prisons in New York. But there are local organizations in other states. Okay. So if you go to freethemny.com, you can learn about the Free Them NY campaign. I also came, I also mentioned the New York chapter of Survived and Punished. They featured Kelly's story, and they're a coalition of defense campaigns and grassroots groups that are committed to eradicating the criminalization of survivors of domestic and sexual violence, and also the culture of violence that contributes to it. So again, they're also New York-based, but they have a national coalition that's also doing amazing work where there's other organizations that they partner with in other states. So I would check those out as well. Wonderful. Thank you for providing all those resources. Thank you for the interesting case. And thank you to Jamie again for bringing us this one. I really, I'm a little bit, you know, I'm a little infuriated at the end, but I'm interested and this is kind of how we get uh, inv- become involved. If you or someone you know needs help, please check out some of the resources that we provide in our show notes. Thank you so much for listening, and we will catch you next time on Women in Crime. Women in Crime is hosted by Megan Sachs and Amy Schlossberg. Our producer and editor is James Varga. Music composition is by Dessert Media. If you enjoy the show, please remember to subscribe and leave a review. You can also support the show through Patreon, where you can get access to additional ad-free content such as virtual happy hours and an extra full-length episode each month. For more information, visit patreon.com slash women in crime. Sources for today's episode include New York Magazine, Survived and Punished NY.org, TheCrimeReport.org, and FreeThemNY.org. Seeking the truth never gets old. Introducing June's Journey, the free-to-play mobile game that will immerse you in a thrilling murder mystery. Join June Parker as she uncovers hidden objects and clues to solve her sister's death in a beautifully illustrated world set in the Roaring Twenties. With new chapters added every week, the excitement never ends. 
Download June's Journey now on your Android or iOS device or play on PC through Facebook games.